about the church. Before I get into it, and this is very, very loosely connected with anything I have to say later today, but are any of you familiar with the, what's known as the Mandela Effect? How many of you know what the Mandela Effect is? Really? How many of you um, are generally conspiracy theorists? How many of you are doomsday preppers? How many of you are members of the Illuminati? I'm just wondering how deep this goes. So, okay. How many of you have ever heard a conspiracy theory that you think might have something to it? Come on, admit it. You're like, wait, this is part of the conspiracy theory. I don't want to be part of this. Mandela Effect is basically a collective misremembering of a fact or an event. Uh, things like lines from famous movies that everyone gets wrong. Um, Star Wars probably has the most famous one. Uh, not being able to remember specifics about global branding. Um, and the term Mandela Effect came into effect uh, after people began repeating the news of Nelson Mandela's death in the mid-80s. How many of you remember when he died in the mid-80s? How many remember that? Yeah, well, he actually became president of South Africa in 1994. So you may be a victim of Mandela Effect. And you may remember that. He died in 2013. How many of you remember 2013? I know, right? So you're like, whoa, I'm already messing with you. So here, I just want to give you a couple examples of the Mandela Effect. Someone, actually, I need, I need some people who are really pop culture savvy. Well, not even pop culture. Let's just say cultural, culturally savvy. North American culturally savvy, okay? I need someone who wants to be my first volunteer to spell... Meyer, as in Oscar Meyer. Who can spell it? Go, Dwayne. Anybody else? Okay, so we have two spellings, all in favor of M-A. All in favor of M-E. Let's see it, please. Here's the next one. Monopoly man. Monocle or no monocle? See? Okay. All in favor of no be quiet, Garth? All in favor, we, we spend time on the same websites. All in favor of no monocle? All in favor of monocle? Let's see the Monopoly man. You're probably thinking of this guy. They both have canes. One has a monocle. One does not. Beloved children's book series about a family of bears. What? I hear it starts with a B. I need somebody definitively to answer that question for me. She says, Berenstein Bears. All in favor? Wait, got a different answer? You go away. What? All in favor of Berenstein Bears or Berenstain Bears? Oh, now you're, now, you're, now you're on to me. You're like, well, I'm not going the most obvious one then. Let's see it. Berenstain. Named after the writers, Jan and Mike Berenstain. I know. Just ruined your childhood, didn't I? In Snow White, what does the witch say to the mirror? The general consensus is the witch says, mirror, mirror, on the wall. If we have the volume cranked up, let's listen to this clip. What wouldst thou know, my queen? Magic mirror on the wall. What? Who is the fairest one of all? I did not doctor that. <laughs> the other Snow White. This is Snow White. And it is magic mirror on the wall. Kit Kat bar, dash or no dash? Okay, I'm going to tell you what. I'm going to show you. But both answers are acceptable because there was a time in Kit Kat's history when they had a dash. So if you're old, 
You probably remember that. That's why you're peanut butter brand that starts with the letter J. <laughs> uh, you can think what you think. Here's what it is. Jiffy is where you get your oil changed. This one blows my mind. Who invented the cotton gin? Eli Whitney. All in favor? You are correct. What ethnicity was Eli Whitney? <laughs> How many of you say black? And if you say Caucasian? Let's, uh, Eli Whitney was most definitely Caucasian. He, uh, you can show the picture. I think. Yeah. He, uh, you're probably confusing him with whom? George Washington Carver. Right. Right. Who invented Jeff peanut butter. Exactly. <laughs> if you uh, attend a college any time in the last 20 years, well, maybe longer than that, it's a favorite of college students. Cup of noodles or cup of noodles? Of or O? All in favor of of? All in favor of O? All who know the actual name of the... Ooh, this is going to blow your mind, Garth. Let's see it. Cup noodles. How many times have you put those on a shelf, I wonder? Yeah. That's awesome. <clears throat> if you've been around church for any uh, period of time, you've probably never sat in a service where it started with the Mandela effect. Uh, but if you've been around church for any period of time, you know that one of the big challenges in any local church is that in doing the work of the church, it is easy to lose track of what we know to be true. It is easy to lose sight of the primary things. It's easy for secondary things to become primary things. So we're taking a few weeks to review church and why we're here and what does God want to do at Faith Community Fellowship. And we talked a few weeks ago about membership. We talked about the concentric circles in the church. Uh, we talked about our core values. We've touched briefly in part one uh, of this series on uh, our mission as given to us by Jesus. And we're going to build on that this morning. Have you noticed, personally, just personally, have you noticed that it's far too easy to lose our way? Have you found this to be true? We start off with a sense of purpose. We start off with a sense of direction. We're young, and then some of us go off to college, and we lose our vision. Some of us get married, and we get busy in the daily affairs of life, and we just lose our way. Some of us do fine until we have kids, and then we get lost in the shuffle, and we get caught up in the providing and caught up in success, and we get caught up in hobbies and escapes and relationships. We get caught up in a variety of things, and somewhere in the shuffle, all of us at some point, we struggle with maintaining our vision and maintaining the sense of purpose to which at one point, we knew God had called us to. And it's a constant battle. Let's just acknowledge that. Because we live in a world that is constantly offering us substitutes. Constantly offering us second best. We live in a world where we're surrounded by people who are, who, who are given to so many different causes and so many different purposes that it's difficult as a Christian. It's, it's difficult to maintain our vision and it's just really easy to get lost. And as I've struggled myself over the years, and as I've observed others, and as I've studied Scripture, it's clear to me that there are certain characteristics of a person who have, who's lost their way, a person who has no sense of vision, a person who's just um, gotten lost in the shuffle, has a deep sense of discontentment. 
They're just never quite satisfied. There's an inner restlessness. Nothing quite does for them what they think it should do for them. And out of that comes a sense of disappointment. And the people and the things that at one time fulfilled them and the relationships that at one time were so satisfying, they lose their attractiveness. And inside, something begins to happen to a person who's lost their way and they begin to collapse and they begin to fold up. Then usually, a person who's lost their way begins to blame. They blame their environment. They blame the things, the people in their world. You know, well, if you would just change, life would be better for me. If, you, if my wife would only, if my husband would only, if my teachers would only, <coughs> if my parents, if my kids would only, if the people at work, the people in this church would only change, and we begin to take shots at, at our world and at our environments and at the people in our environments, and we assume that if our world would just change, then this thing inside of us where that's not working right, that it would fall into place too. The person who's lost their way, who's, had, who's lost their sense of direction, um, and kind of lost their sense of vision or sense of purpose, has a big hole that they're constantly uh, trying to fill with toys and relationships and position and social standing. And so the man or woman who's lost their way, somehow something has replaced their first love. And they'll begin a search for toys and for relationships and for position and for social standing that they think will fill that emptiness and will get them back on track. And then, unfortunately for Christians, when a Christian loses his way or loses her way, they begin contemplating things that at one point in their life they never would have considered. <coughs> things that in the past weren't real temptations, just fleeting thoughts, become real temptations. Places they would have never considered going, they find themselves being drawn in that direction. Relationships in the past that they would have never considered entering into, all of a sudden those relationships become real temptations and real options for them. Things that were never a motivation or a temptation are now the driving force are now pulling them, are now influencing decisions in direction. And all of us in this busy life, all of us run the risk of losing our way and run the risk of getting off track. Regardless of how long you've known the Lord, regardless of what kind of family you've come up in, regardless of how much experience you have and how much education you have and how much Bible you know, all of us run the risk. And the reason that a person with no vision and the reason that a person who has lost their way, the reason they suffer from this deep sense of discontentment, the reason they go into this search mode where they're constantly trying to fill their life and their time, it's this, that when God created you, when God created me, He created us with a specific purpose. He fine-tuned each of us for a specific task. We weren't made for a thousand things. We were made for one thing. And when an individual loses sight of what that is, and when we veer off course for whatever reason, and we begin to, to drift from the one thing to which God has called us, we lose our sense of purpose. And we're forced to shift into a gear where we begin searching for something to fill that up. And the truth is so simple. And it seems like a great place to start this morning. So it's simply this. That no matter who you are, or what you are, or what you know, or where you live, or how old you are, until your recognized purpose in life is the purpose to which God has called you, you will always suffer from a sense of purposelessness. I'm going to take a fresh look this morning at what God has to say about this and what He's called us to do, because in my experience, it's probably in your experience, <clears throat> we struggle in this area. We constantly run into people who say things like, well, you know, I used to go to church. You ever heard that? You ever say it yourself? 
Yeah, I used to be involved in church. I used to teach Sunday school. I used to witness to my friends. <coughs> and it's evident as you talk to people that somewhere, somewhere right in the middle of being involved in church, they lost their sense of why they were there and what it was that God had called them to do. So this morning I want to look at a, at a I want to take a kind of a fresh look, if we can, at a familiar passage of Scripture, and this is what God has called us to do. Because it's only when this is our goal, when it's only when our mission and our purpose uh, and, and meaning is clear that we have something to measure our progress by. And I'm kind of into that. I like measuring things and measuring progress and lack of progress and identifying that and fixing it. And so we want something to measure our, our progress by. And, and, and it's only when mission, it's only when the call is clear that we really know where we stand in relationship to God and in relationship to each other. Um, and I think it's only when it's clear that we can begin to move back towards that God-given purpose. And I believe that in a group like this, there are some who would say, well, yeah, I've sort of lost my way. There was a time in my life when things made more sense. I started my career. I started my college education. I started my you know, family life. I started marriage. I started a ministry somewhere in a church, and we were on course, and I don't know how it happened, but somewhere along the way, I sort of got lost in the shuffle. And I'm kind of going through this routine, and I'm find myself laying in bed at night and I stare at the ceiling and ask myself, what is this about? And I look into my future and nothing changes. My life seems to be kind of laid out on this predictable track for me and honestly, it's kind of depressing. And the people around me have no idea that what's going on inside my head, but as I look into the future, it's just the same old thing, same old thing, day after day, week after week, Sunday after Sunday, year after year, and I find myself asking, what's the point of this? And so I'm just asking, what's the point? So this morning, I want to try to begin answering that question what is the point? Why are you here? Why am I here? Why are we here as a body, as a church? Why are we here? And what is it that God has called us to do? And what is your purpose? And why in the world would God leave you and leave me on this earth? <coughs> I mean, if things are going to be so much better in heaven, and if I understand Scripture, uh, they are, why in the world would God leave us here? And if, in fact, God has finally tuned you for a specific purpose... And outside that specific purpose, you and I will live with a sense of purposelessness, then it seems appropriate that we should refocus our vision back to where God originally began. So, Jesus understood the importance of vision, he understood the importance of purpose, and he understood uh, the importance of having a clear vision of where we're headed. And in his last days on this earth, he had done all these amazing things, he, and, then he, and then he died on the cross, and people thought it was over. But he's like, no problem, this is really no problem for me, and three days later, uh, he He's like, this is, this is no big deal either. And he, he leaves the tomb. And he's gone. And he's alive. And he's gathered his closest friends together. And in essence, he says to them, okay, now, <clears throat> now, for real now, I'm leaving. Before I leave, I want to take one more opportunity to focus your attention on the main thing. Because the main thing must remain the main thing. And we call it the Great Commission. We've talked about it a little bit here in the last few weeks. In our church, we like to call it the Everyday Commission. So I'd like to take a fresh look at this passage this morning in Matthew 28. And I encourage you, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, whether you've been a believer for 40 years, whether you're a second or third generation Christian, whether you're a new believer, whether you're still on the outside looking in and you're checking it out, watching, searching, waiting to see what Christianity is all about, wherever you are in the spectrum, I encourage you to give me your attention for the next few minutes. Give God an open heart and mind as we look at these familiar verses in Matthew 28. <clears throat> Matthew 28. None of us can imagine what's going through these men's minds. We know one thing that's going through their minds, because here's a little background. Many of these men thought that Jesus was uh, about to set up an earthly kingdom. They thought he was going to kind of call down the angels from heaven, and, and they were going to set up a literal, physical kingdom. 
And they figured they were in pretty good shape because if you're hanging out with the king around the time that he's paying his dues, then comes showtime when he's the king, you're in good shape. I mean, you are like his right-hand man because you're, you've stuck by him during the difficult times. So that's kind of what they're thinking. They're thinking they're in like Flynn. So there's sort of this sense of anticipation. They're excited that maybe something uh, physical, something visual is going to happen in front of them. Maybe there's just going to be this new manifestation. It's kind of a, a revolution maybe. I mean, because he's raised himself from the dead, that's kind of a big deal. So what in the, what, what in the world is going to happen next, you know? And Jesus gathers these men together, and he takes another chance to, to sharpen their focus. Because <clears throat> he knew that in the days to come, they too would be tempted to get off on tangents. And they did. But he knew that they would be tempted to take up causes other than his cause. He knew that they would be tempted to, to, to live a life of ease and comfort and pleasure as they became more popular in the community. And he knew that, knew that they'd always have to have before them the vision, the call, the commission. So we're going to come back to Matthew 28. We were here a few weeks ago, and we're going to just take a little bit different approach today. So here's what he says in verse 16 of Matthew 28. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. <coughs> and Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Just to stop right there. This is an amazing statement. Because he's saying, basically saying, guys, you don't need to look any further than me. You've asked to see the Father. Take a good look. This is as close to the Father as you're going to get. Because men, all authority in the universe, all authority in heaven, all authority on earth has been given to me. I am the ultimate authority. When you, you share that in a society like ours, people tend to think, well, you know, wow, that's pretty self-centered. That's pretty, it's a pretty major statement to make. That's pretty egocentric. But remember, this is a man who just rose from the dead. And I don't know about you, but when somebody dies, <coughs> and they've predicted, no problem, I'm going to die, but in three days I'll be back. And they die and they bury them, but then they're able to pull that off, I'm going to cut them a little slack. I'll be like, okay, I believe you. All authority belongs to you, whatever you say. I, I think you can do it. I can't do that, but you can do that. You pulled that off. I've never heard of this happening before, but I'll hang with you. Go ahead. And these men could accept that. They could accept the fact that he was God that he was the son of God, and they had questions like, well, how does this all fit together then? How's this going to play out? But when he says, all authority belongs to me, they were willing to go along with that because they'd seen what Jesus was able to do. So he begins by saying, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. In other words, whatever I say, you need to take it real seriously. You can trust this. But do you know what else is implied uh, in this phrase that kind of comforts me? When he says, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me, in essence, he's saying, what am I about to say? What I'm about to share with you takes into consideration everything else that's going on in your life and everything else that you know about me. Because I understand what's going on in your life. <coughs> From my vantage point, because I understand your schedule, I understand your pressures, I understand your temptations, I understand your weaknesses, I understand the, understand the expectations people have of you, I understand your desires, I understand the hurts that you deal with, I understand all of that. And in light of all that, here's what I want you to do. When everything seems to be going against you, when it doesn't seem possible, it doesn't seem practical, when faith and religion don't seem to mesh with real life, he says, understand that I've taken all that into consideration in what I'm about to say, because all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. If a person who's lost their way has a real, time, real tough time uh, understanding and accepting how faith in God and church and Christianity, how it all fits in with real life. You may be one of those people. It's not that you 
don't believe in God. It's not that you're mad at God. It's not that you don't think God exists or anything like that. It's that you look at the religion thing and you look at real life and you think they just don't mesh. They just don't mix. And Jesus would say to you, I understand that. But trust me, they do. And if you'll set as your vision this vision, in real life, you'll, you'll see just how wonderfully they really do mesh together. So he goes on with these familiar words in verse 19. So therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, super familiar to church people, okay? So if you grew up in church, you've, you've heard this a million times. If you've been in this church for two months, you've heard it already, twice now. We got, I got to get technical for a second. I don't do this very often. But I want to point out a couple of things that we, I think will help us understand just how specific Jesus was in, in his commission. <clears throat> First of all, understand that the New Testament was not written in English. We understand that, right? Okay. Some of it wasn't written in Greek either. Some of it was in Aramaic and then translated into Greek. And some of it was vice versa. In this, in this command, there appear to be four verbs. The verbs appear to be go, make, baptize, and teach. All of them are participles, but only one of them is a command. In verse 19, he says, therefore go. And go in the Greek isn't a command in this, in this particular passage. It's a participle. Literally, it means going, as you are going. And then he says, make disciples. This is the essence of what Jesus wants us to understand. That there's a, there, there is a command here. There's a verb. There is a mission. There's a purpose. There's a meaning. And he's like, that, this is it. The rest of the verse, you can kind of read it like this. As you are going, making disciples. As you are going, disciple as you go. And as you do that, you'll, you'll do some baptizing and you'll do some teaching. And you'll teach them to observe all the things that I've taught you. And by the way, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. But my point is, make disciples. That's the command. And I guess Matthew, because he's writing all this down, he's thinking like the rest of the disciples, you know, it's like, wait a minute. You, okay, we got that. Make disciples. Now what else? And he's, he's got his iPad out there, and he's ready to kind of take notes here. And Jesus, well, what? that's it, really. Make disciples. Well, you mean to tell me, Jesus, that <coughs> so you're the Son of God. We spend three years following you around, listening to your teaching, all this stuff, all these miracles, all these parables. I mean, look, I've written 27 chapters so far, Jesus, and all this radical, complicated stuff. And we get to the end, and you sum it up for us by saying, make disciples. So there's got to be more to it than that, Jesus. And I think Jesus is saying to us, no, let me sum it up for you. Your purpose, your mission, the reason you're here is to make disciples. Disciple, we said a couple weeks ago, is a learner. A disciple is a student, and a disciple is a follower. So a disciple is a learner and a follower. And what Jesus was saying to these men is, as you go, as you're going, as you're doing life, as you're moving through normal stuff of life, your purpose is to help create in other people a hunger to follow me. And not only a hunger, but your purpose is to move into people's lives in such a way that you develop relationships with them, and the relationship results in that person being able to follow me. And that you are to move into people's lives with the purpose of leading them from wherever they are into a growing, continuing relationship with me, a relationship that can stand on its own once you move out. And he says, as you go and all the things that you do with your work, with your family, the reason you're here, the number one purpose isn't simply to be good. It's not simply to worship because, you know, that's something you're going to do a lot more and a lot better worshiping in heaven. The reason I've left you here is to make disciples. So let me ask you a question before we move on. 
those of you who have a purpose or a mission statement for your life, for, for your personal life, does this enter in in any way at all? <clears throat> and then for those of you who don't really have a direction or a vision, you're just kind of a good old Christian guy, you know, person just kind of out there doing whatever and trying to be a good person. Has it ever occurred to you that God has left you here for a purpose other than just being good? Because I think too many Christians and too many churches just kind of do their thing growing up, kind of thinking that God wants us to be good, and that's God's goal for our lives, just stay out of trouble. Just, you know, it's like, Todd, stay out of trouble. See you in heaven. Hang in there. It's going to be tough. You know, stay out of trouble. Has it ever occurred to you, and I'm sure that it has, that it's beyond that, and that Jesus didn't say to them, go into all the world and don't sin? He didn't say, go into the world and just be kind of, you know, be a nice person. Have some good qualities. He said, I le- he's not saying I've left you here to be good. He didn't say that at all. He says, I've left you here to make an impact. And as you go, create in all of your relationships followers of me. That is, take people, help take people from wherever they are, whether it's your children or someone that you work with, or someone in your neighborhood, or just move into their lives in a significant way so that when you exit their lives, they'll be able to say, wow, as a result of that relationship, I feel like I know Christ better. I feel closer to God. I feel like I understand a little bit better what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I love our church's mission statement because for, for me, I think it really captures the essence of what, makes, uh, what it means when Christ says, go and make disciples. Our mission statement that we've adopted is this. It says, our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ for the good of our community and the sake of the world. In other words, to lead people to become disciples, fully devoted followers of Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, go and make disciples. And I've adopted that as my personal mission statement, and I try to keep that in front of me. My mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And I love this statement because it's so broad, because it means that as I move into the lives of some people who don't know Christ, (coughs) I move into the lives of some people who aren't religious people, who don't even have a relationship with a church, that I know as I spend time with those people and I can fulfill my purpose on this earth because through my life and through my lifestyle and through my conversation, hopefully I can be a catalyst in that person's life to begin moving them toward a time when they come to grips with the fact that they're a sinner and that they in fact need a savior and hopefully I can be used by God to bring them into maturity as a believer and a follower of Jesus. But let me tell you something. There is something, because you've known people like this, there is something about a person with a vision. There is something that is magnetic There's something about a person who has captured what it is that God wants them to do. I love being in the presence of people like that. A person who's taken on as their purpose for life the cause of Christ, that's at another level altogether. A person who lives in order to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, there's something about them that's a little bit strange, first of all, and sometimes it's a little bit threatening, but it causes people to ask two questions. Why are you that way? I mean, why did you respond that way? Why did you react that way? Why did you say that? Why, 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 why? There's something about a person who has a clear sense of purpose and calling in their life that it causes people to ask why, and then it causes them to ask how. How did you respond like that? How did you get through that? How did you deal with that life circumstance? And when a person, when a Christian especially, catches hold of the fact that they're left here for a purpose, and that God has left us here to move into relationships for a purpose, there's something that's just overwhelming, and they see the biggest obstacles as opportunities, and there's a fire within them that draws people to them, and people are drawn to them because of this thing that they can't even put their finger on. And Jesus knew that his disciples, and for us as well, we need to take up our cause, as our cause, the cause of Jesus Christ. 
There's another reason I like our mission statement. It's because it's measurable. And I, that's kind of important to me because I have days like you do. <coughs> I have days where I come home, and I don't, I don't know if this happens to you, but I come home, I'll sit down, and Alethea will say, how was your day? And I think for a second, and I honestly can't remember any of it. Do you ever have days like that? It's like things come at you so fast, uh, decisions, papers, emails, phone calls, meetings, stuff, people, conversations. And at the end, you can't really remember any of it. You're like, I know I did, I'm sure I did something productive today. Surely I did something productive today. And I can't remember because there's just so much stuff. And you, you see this simple statement, living to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, has an uncanny way of, leaning, of, of lending meaning to what would otherwise often be meaningless days of giving a sense of purpose to what can quickly become a purposeless life. Because at the end of those days, when I look at work and I think, well, what in the world did I do anything? Did I do anything good? Did I do, do anything eternal? Why in the world am I here? I can remember a conversation with a hurting parent. I can remember a text conversation with a teenager. I can remember that conversation with a new believer. I can remember a lunch meeting with an unsafe friend. And I can say, thank you, Lord Jesus, that today I was a part of leading someone into a growing relationship with you. And mom and dad, you can lie in bed at night and think of that three-minute conversation with your son or daughter. And you can, think, you can say, thank you, Lord, that 95% of this day, I don't know what that was about, but thank you that today I fulfilled my purpose for a living because I facilitated the growth of my child wasn't much today, but it was something, so thank you. At the end of the day, when you think, what in the world is going on? You can remember that conversation, that phone call, that small group, that homework, that phone call, that, that, uh, that whatever, that thing that happened in your life that day that had eternal significance, and you look back at that, and you can think, wow, thank you, Lord, that what would otherwise have been a meaningless day had meaning. Because today, during these specific times, I was a part of leading someone into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Just taking the next steps. That's why you need, it's why I need to set as our focus and our vision as our goal what Jesus said when he said to these men, I'm leaving you here for one basic reason. It's not to worship me, though you will worship me. It's not to obey me, though you will obey me. It's not to serve me, though you will serve me. Those things you'll do better in heaven. But the one thing you only have one opportunity to do is to lead people into a growing relationship with, with me to make disciples. And I know some of you are thinking, because we're deep enough into this now, you're thinking, well, that, that sounds really good. That's real motivating. Hip, hip, hooray, let's do this. Let's sing a song. Let's go do it, yay. But I don't know anything about the Bible. <clears throat> and I don't know. I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. I think I'm moving in that direction. I mean, I don't know anything. How can I lead anybody into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ? That, the professionals really should do that. And God's answer to you might very well be maybe not yet, but soon. But he still wants you to set as your goal and as your purpose in your life, not just acquiring knowledge. Because there's a tendency to think, that if we don't know the Bible, that God's will for our lives is to just know the Bible. And so we get these Bibles, and we get into these Bible studies, and we listen to you know, Dobson and Stanley and Swindoll and Jeremiah and Lucado, and we just suck up all this stuff, and it's great. And somewhere, you know what happens? Somewhere along the way, even as Christians, we lose our way, because instead of understanding that our purpose is to lead people, we come to think that our purpose is to gain information. So regardless of where you are in your understanding of all this, and regardless of where you are in terms of your understanding of the Bible... Jesus still has as your purpose leading other people into a growing relationship with him. And you're like, yeah, but my life is a wreck. And, you know, I know a little bit about the Bible, but my marriage is a wreck. And I'm sort of headed this way. My wife's going that way. And the longer this goes on, the further we get apart. And my kids are kind of a wreck. And my job's a wreck. And I drive a wreck. And my life is a wreck. 
how in the world could I ever be part of this thing that you're talking about, leading a person in a growing relationship with Christ? Well, I believe God would say, relax, I can handle that. Because I believe He would say to you, as you allow me to transform your character, as you allow me to invade those areas of your life, I promise I'll put things back together in such a way that when you are ready, I will lead someone into a relationship with you who you can help, that no one else can help because they need to hear what you have to say. And you're like, yeah, I need purpose, but I'm not a religious person, and I've enjoyed myself so far this morning, but I'm really looking forward to the music. When's the band going to play? How much longer are you going to talk? I mean, this is all, it's all right, you know, but there are parts of this that are appealing to me, but there's something about it that's just not me. <clears throat> I got some good news for you this morning. Did you know that in this room you are surrounded by men and women from every walk of life who at some time in their trek through this life have said the same thing? Because all of us began at some point where we didn't know anything. And all of us began with this sense of, well, this is, this is kind of weird. This is strange, really. This, it's kind of attractive, but there's so many questions. And all of us have been, at, been there at one point or another. And if you will let us fulfill our calling in your life, we would love to introduce you in a, in a really non-threatening way to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have purpose in life that transcends this life. You can be a part of something that began before you were born, that will continue after you die. You could become a part of the most exciting thing that's happening on this earth. You could become a part of leading someone into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. <clears throat> for me, I've decided to add a couple of phrases to that basic statement, just for me personally, that my purpose is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. How? I think it's important in a mission statement to say how. So for me, the how is by becoming a leader worth following, and by exercising my gifts in the church. By becoming a leader worth following, that's my character. And by exercising my gifts in the church, that's my availability. Because you know what I've observed? If an individual opens up their life and says, God, sand off the rough edges. God, take my temper, deal with my lust, deal with my pride, deal with my jealousy, deal with my habits, deal with my insecurities. Lord Jesus, I want you to transform my character. When a person opens themselves up to the Holy Spirit that way, when they make available to a local congregation their gifts and their talents and their strengths, they'll be swept into the process of leading others into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't avoid it. When those two things become true of you, God will begin leading people into your life who He knows you can help. Because each of us as believers have been given certain gifts and we have certain talents. And each of us is a unique blend of talents and personality and gifts and passion. There's something you can do even within a local congregation that no one else can do as well as you can. God has gifted you for that purpose. And when you as a person who's willing to be invaded by the Holy Spirit and transformed by His power, when you make your gifts available to the local congregation, you cannot avoid being a part of leading someone into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, because that's how it works. It may be in a program. It may be over breakfast. It may be in a small group. It may be on a a phone call. It may be some sort of structured, organized thing where you use your talents, where you use, you know, like your singing or your musical abilities. It may be in a mentoring relationship where you meet someone on purpose. It may be in a counseling situation. There are so many ways. Don't, don't limit God and box Him in here because Jesus didn't give us an outline. 
you know, here's how to disciple somebody, guys. You're writing this down, step one through 12, and I hope you got notes to take, paper to take this note, notes here. He just says, look, allow me to transform your character, first of all. Use your gifts in the local body. Trust me, you'll be swept into the process. And one day, you'll stand back and you'll say, wow, God used me to lead another person into a growing relationship with Jesus. There's nothing like those moments. To step back and God shows you that He used you to facilitate that process in someone's life. That He used me to take someone to the next step. Because God hasn't left us here to be good. He hasn't left us here just to be righteous. God hasn't left us here to maintain a church building with a couple of programs. God left you here and He left me here to lead other people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And when Jesus says, go make disciples, when he commanded us to be involved in those types of relationships, he wasn't, wasn't talking to a subsect of Christians. He was talking to every man, woman, teenager, child who knows for sure they put their faith in Jesus Christ. So what I'm asking you to do is to take up as your personal cause this cause of Christ, this call of God on your life to be part of leading others into a growing relationship with Jesus. And I want you to know, that everything that happens in this place and over there behind those doors and over there behind those doors and every program we design and offer here is being done from this perspective. We've got to be a group of people who are committed as individuals to moving into relationships with a specific purpose in mind, asking, Lord, how can I be a part of facilitating this person's progress in their relationship with you? And if you're wondering why I harp on this so much, and every couple of years I do a series of messages like this, you're like, come on, we're doing great. Look around. We're just, we're great. Things are awesome. We're, we're an awesome church. A few years ago, I, I heard a story of a triathlon that was run in Florida. <clears throat> a triathlon, for those of you who don't know, is basically a race that's made up of three parts. First, you swim a long way, lo- longer than normal people would ever desire to swim. You get on a bicycle, and you ride a bicycle longer than most people would ever want to ride a bicycle. And then you run... Most of us would already be dead. <laughs> and they uh, train for these things, right, Tim? And they train for weeks and months for these competitions. In this particular race, there's one super athlete. This guy was, he was, a, he was an elite. This guy was a major league athlete. At the end of the swimming competition, he comes time to get off the bicycles. This guy was so far ahead of the rest of the group that when he entered what they called the transition area, where you go drop your bike and, and grab a water and, and head off down the road running, there were no people ready to, to direct him. He was so far ahead of the, of, the, of, the, of the group in the transition area, no one was ready for him. So he jumps off his bike, grabs a water, starts off running down what he thought was the right road. Well, seven or eight, nine minutes later, they realized what had happened. And two of the judges jumped in their car and they went after this guy. And when they caught him, he was about two miles down the wrong road. But in order to stay qualified for the race, he couldn't accept their help. So he turned around and began running back to the transition area. I want you to think about something for a second. Isn't that a picture of a lot of us sometimes? Committed, dedicated, prepared, equipped, discipled, but kind of lost. I mean, all the energy, all the focus, everything's there, but we're just racing down the wrong road. And as I talk to Christians who are just eaten up with discontentment, who've lost their focus, I mean, in their mind, they've got everything together, but what's the problem? 
The problem is they've lost their focus. They're on the wrong road. They're heading in the wrong direction. Oh, the great part about that story, which is kind of hard to believe, but this guy not only got back into the race, but he won the race. That should be encouraging to some of you. Because you know what it says to me on a spiritual plane? Regardless of how long you've been lost in the weeds, regardless of how long it's been since you had your focus straight, regardless of where you are in your spiritual pilgrimage, maybe you're not even at the starting gate, regardless of where you are, nobody is outside the bounds of God's grace. And if you and I are willing to allow Him to invade our character, and if you and I are willing to present to Him our gifts and our talents, and if you and I are willing to say, my purpose in life, I've got several things I've got to do. I've got responsibilities. I've got all these things, and it's super busy, and I'm a very important person. But Lord Jesus, I accept this challenge. I accept the commission. So Father, I choose as my focus to lead other people into a growing relationship with Christ. And when that happens, when that happens as a body, I think we need to fasten our seatbelts because God is going to do wonderful, wonderful things because that's what God is into. And those are the kinds of people that God is looking for, and that's the kind of church that God blesses. Let me ask you something, and I'll wrap it up. <clears throat> what is your purpose for living? If I, you know, if I were to take your checkbook and your visa statement and your appointment book and your calendar, and what would I determine is your purpose for living? Has there ever been a time that you've been able to say, okay, God, I got all this stuff. I got all this stuff going on, but God, I've, I've drifted and I've kind of gotten off course and so now I choose to adopt for my family and for, my, for me personally your cause. And I'm committed to surrendering my whole life to being a part of leading other people into a growing relationship with Jesus. And if that's your purpose, and if that's your desire, and if you have surrendered everything you know to surrender, your dreams, your ambitions, your expectations, your ideas of what life and effectiveness is supposed to look like, your image, your reputation, your sense of security, if you'll surrender all of that, you'll find that you will be content no matter where you are, no matter your circumstances or your situation, you will find fulfillment because your purpose is God's purpose and your life has eternal meaning. But if that isn't the purpose of your life, you probably won't be happy in this church for very long. You actually won't be happy anywhere for very long. Because the, the leadership of this church, our desire is to bring together a body of people who will say, God, here I am, transform my character. And Lord, I want to be used by you to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. We're going to sing a song. We're going to listen to a song. I'm going to play it. You can sing if you want to. There's a line that says, Here I empty myself to owe this world nothing and find everything in you. I hope you'll take the four and a half minutes that it takes for this song to play to maybe begin to wrestle with this. Or maybe to stop, stop wrestling. Maybe it's time to simply surrender. To bring all that you're holding on to, your struggles, your addiction, your family tension, your relational baggage, your insecurity, your need for approval, your need to be noticed, your unrealistic expectations, your inflated sense of self-importance, whatever. Let's take a step toward truly surrendering these things that are holding us back from experiencing contentment because it's in the surrender that we find contentment. It's in the place of contentment that God brings peace. And it's from a place of peace that God will use you most effectively for His kingdom and for His glory. So I just encourage you to let God speak to you through the words of this song.
and then we're going to sing together. As God speaks to your spirit for the next few minutes, feel free to get on your knees right where you are. No one's going to come to you. We're going to respect your space. If you want to bring someone from your circle into that, that's fine. Let's just be open to the promptings of the Holy Spirit over these next few minutes. Listen to this song. The riches of this world will fade. The treasures of our God remain. Here I empty myself to all this world, nothing, and find everything in you. The riches of this world. Master.